Uh, We're going to be continuing our series this morning from the book of 2 Timothy. So if you've got a Bible, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 8 through 18. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 18. And as I was thinking about the passage this week, the question that came into my mind that I wanted to pose to you this morning is this. If your house was burning down, what would you rescue on the way out the door? Assume that your family is safe, your kids are safe, your spouse is safe. Uh, There are no people that still need to be rescued. What is it that you would grab? Uh, Maybe you'd go back for a dog, right? Probably not a cat, but maybe a dog you'd go back for. Uh, Maybe it would be a musical instrument. A guitar or something like that that's precious to you. Uh, maybe it would be an heirloom, your grandmother's pearls or something along those lines that you would rush back in and get if the house was burning down. For my wife, I know what that item would be. It would be our kids' baby books. When we had had our first daughter a couple years into raising her, we went out of town one weekend, and as we were getting in the car, she handed me a bag. And she said, would you please place this bag with our luggage in the car? And I said, sure. What is this? She said, well, this is Elizabeth's baby book from the the hospital. It's got our pictures from the hospital, her little lock of hair, her birth certificate, all of those items that cannot be replaced. I want to take them with us. And I said, why? And she said, in case the house burns down while we're gone, I don't want to lose it. And uh, I said, kind of without thinking, I said, but what if the car gets stolen while we're on our trip? You know, it's one of those things you sort of say, and then you think, I should have kept that in my brain, right? I shouldn't have probably said that, because what happens if that item gets lost? Well, she would be grieved, because that is a priceless heirloom to her. Now, the reason I share that is because I think all of us would recognize that uh, whatever that thing is or things that you would save if the house was burning down, uh, on some level that represents your value system. Uh, On some level you'd say, whatever it is that I would go back for is something that I value in a life or death situation perhaps. It's something that I want to have with me. Now, if we're to expand that concept just a little bit, as we uh, look at 2 Timothy this morning, the question I might ask is not so much what would you uh, grab that's a material item from your home, but this question, in a life or death situation, if your life is nearing its end, and you were to say, what are the critical values or ideas that have guided my life, what would they be? What are those ideas, what are those principles, those values that I would say, uh, without them, life really is not worth living? Maybe you'd say, you know what, I cannot live without love, without the love of my family or without a community surrounding me. Maybe it would be hope. You say, I want to know that there is hope not only for my future, but for the future of my children, and that is a value that I cling to. Uh, What is that value or what are those values that you'd say, these define my life so that when you near the end, you'd say, this is what I'm about and I want to make sure that everybody around me knows this is what I'm about. As you look at the book of 2 Timothy, it is absolutely clear that for the Apostle Paul, that value was the gospel of Jesus Christ itself because Paul was a man who had encountered the resurrected Savior 
on the road to Damascus. And ever since that encounter, nothing mattered more to him than the reality of the risen Savior. So that all of the rest of his life, until he was martyred under the reign of Nero, all the rest of his life was driven by the gospel. So that when we get to the book of 2 Timothy, what we see is this impassioned plea because 2 Timothy was the last letter that Paul wrote. And Timothy, or Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy, uh, when I am gone, you hold to the truth of the gospel. You proclaim the truth of the gospel. There in Ephesus, you make disciples, pass the gospel to faithful men who will teach it to other faithful men who will teach it to other faithful men so that the good news of Jesus Christ will not die with my death, but through the power of the Spirit, it will continue. That was what was at the center of Paul's value system. If you remember last week, as we began the book of 2 Timothy, the thing we talked about was that Timothy was a naturally timid individual. And so he was naturally a person that in the face of conflict or suffering for the sake of the gospel, Timothy was the kind of guy that would pull back. And so Paul urged him by the power of God's spirit, don't be afraid. Because the Spirit of God is greater than whatever you're afraid of. Now what we're going to see as we continue in the passage for this morning is that Paul will go on to say, here is why you need to stand firm. Timothy, here are the stakes. Because Paul's going to say, Timothy, for all of my life since I encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ, for all of my life since then, what matters most to me is that the world hears the message that Jesus died for our sin and rose again so we can have eternal life. And Timothy, those are the stakes that the gospel itself is the most priceless treasure on planet earth. And so we have a calling to know it, to guard it, to proclaim it. Those are the stakes, Timothy. And so throughout this passage, Paul will lay out the good news of Jesus Christ and say, Timothy, you guard it, even with your life, even if it requires suffering, even if it requires conflict, even if it results in your death as it would shortly result in the death of Paul. Timothy, you guard the gospel because, again, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a priceless treasure worth defending. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a priceless treasure worth defending. For you and me, the question is uh, this this morning— Are our lives really driven by the reality of the gospel of Jesus? Do we believe that Jesus died and rose again? Are we willing to arrange our lives, our careers, our families, everything in our lives, are we willing to arrange our lives around that reality? And rather than pull back in fear, will we be unashamed? Will we be willing to endure at times conflict and suffering for the sake of the gospel. The reality is that we don't live in a culture right now where we are beaten or imprisoned or put to death for the gospel. Uh, There are men and women around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ, right now who endure those things for the sake of the gospel. But it is true that even in our culture, uh, we are a distinct minority if we are people who hold to the orthodox Christian faith, that is the inerrancy of Scripture, the literal death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the people of God, the reality of the Trinity, 
When we hold to those things, that places us in a minority in our world, which means we will at times experience social pushback and even shaming and maybe even isolation for the sake of the gospel. And Paul, as he said to Timothy, would say to us, but the gospel is a priceless treasure worth defending, worth arranging your life around. So he will lay out why it's such a priceless treasure and how we can proceed in defending it and reflecting it. All right, so as you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, the first major principle you're going to see Paul lay out is this. Guard God's message. Guard God's message. Begin in verse 8 with me. Paul writes, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And then he goes on, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We'll come back to verses 11 and 12 in a moment, but drop down to verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul begins this section of the book by laying out here is what the gospel is and here's why it matters so much. It is like unlike any other message on the planet. So he says, Timothy, you guard it, retain it, protect it, make sure you know it. And he goes on, verses 8 and 9 and 10, Paul actually lays out the good news. And he says the gospel is priceless for a few reasons. And he's going to lay it out. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Do you think that Timothy had not ever heard this before? I guarantee you he had heard this message from the lips of Paul dozens of times, if not hundreds of times. I promise you that every time the two men spoke, Paul laid out for him again, here's the gospel. Here's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because it was that important to Paul and it exuded from Paul's pores as he lived his life. He says the gospel is priceless for a few reasons. One, because its author is God. He said it is God who initiated our salvation. It is God who saved us. It is God who revealed to us Jesus. And so the gospel is priceless because it is not a human message. It's not a message that came from simply another prophet. It's not a message that came from even the apostle Paul himself. It is a message that was proclaimed by God most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. So he says God initiated the gospel and he is its author. When God speaks, we ought to listen. Many of you will remember the old ad campaign from the 70s and 80s, E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen, right? Paul says, when God speaks, we are compelled to hear the message. Just the fact that God gave it makes it priceless. Its author is God. He says its foundation is grace. Says he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to 
His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only uh, message uh, in any religion, ultimately, that is founded on grace. The idea is you cannot work your way to God's favor, no matter what you do. Every other religious system says if you are good enough, God will approve of you. Christianity says you are not good enough. And so God approves of Jesus and his death on behalf of your sin and his resurrection to bring you life. And because God approves of Jesus and you are connected to Jesus by faith, now God also approves of you. Not because you're good, but because of his grace. That makes the gospel a unique message. And then Paul will go on and say, its foundation is grace and thirdly, the promise is is eternal life. I love uh, the way that he describes it at the end of verse 10. He says, Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Death is the greatest enemy that uh, we face. We face the prospect of death every single day of our lives. We are aware that one day we're going to die. Some of us are closer to that day than others. And ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we have faced the specter of death. And what Paul says is Jesus came along and says, nope, abolished. I'm going to do away with it. And he proved its banishment by rising from the dead and promising to all those who trust in Jesus that they can have eternal life. And so because its author is God, the foundation is grace, and its promise is eternal life. Paul says, this is a priceless message. And so he begins this passage by saying, do not be ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, it is a message that compels us to speak its beauty and its glory. Paul begins the book of Romans very similarly by saying this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the very power of God is displayed in it and the very grace of God is displayed in it. And I believe Paul often begins his letters this way because he knows We are tempted to be ashamed because the world around us communicates an attitude of shame toward those who hold to the truth of Jesus Christ. That was true in the first century. It is true in the 21st century. And so he says, do not be ashamed. When I was the college pastor here at Grace, one of my favorite moments to interact with was when a young man and woman would get engaged to be married. And I'm going to tell you right now, I never saw a young woman who was embarrassed or ashamed of that diamond ring on her finger. I never saw a young man, in fact, who was not eager to give her that ring, to display that ring. I remember when I first purchased a ring for my wife, and I had to wait three or four weeks to actually propose, because I had to talk to her father first. And that ring was in a coat closet in my apartment. Man, I sweated that ring being there every day. And I wanted so badly to pull it out and display it and give it to her because it didn't belong in a coat closet. Uh, These days with social media, when a young woman gets 
engaged, you will go to Instagram or Facebook and there are 40 angles of that ring, right? All over. She wants you to know that it's there. Right? Even if she's trying to be modest, she might come up and you say, how are you doing? And she goes, I'm good. How are you? Hi. Right? She wants you to see it. She holds it out. Look, she wants you to know it's there because she's not ashamed. She rejoices because this represents a priceless treasure, which is the love of her beloved. And so she shouts it from the rooftops. Paul says the gospel is a priceless treasure, one we are called to not be ashamed of, but actually to rejoice in and to proclaim. And so he will say, Timothy, you guard that message even with your life. I was thinking over the course of the week, what is it that causes us to struggle with guarding the message? I think there are a few things that uh, cause us to struggle. One is simply the attitude of our world that says that cannot be true. But I think also for many of us, uh, we slide into uh, heresy, even without realizing it, because there are aspects of the gospel that are hard to swallow. They're hard to accept. I was thinking this week about the concept of uh, heresy, which is uh, any deviation from the truth of the gospel, from the truth of God's word. Heresy would be this is outside the scope of Christian belief, right? And, And as I thought about it, I really thought every major heresy, I think, springs from one of two errors, Okay, the first error is this. You're really not that bad. You're really not that bad. So we live in a world that says, you know what? You really aren't a sinner. You can do anything you want to do. Nobody should tell you that the way you act, the way you think, the way you believe is sinful and wrong and worthy of the judgment of God. And so we come to believe that we are self-sufficient. I actually think American culture in particular has swallowed this lie wholesale. And, And biblically, the reality is that it is true. We are made in the image of God and we are designed for glorious things. But we've fallen into sin. And as a result, there is no way to earn our way into God's favor. I ran across a sign not very long ago with a famous quote by Tommy Lasorda, a great quote that I think uh, summarizes our culture's attitude toward ourselves. He says, the difference between impossible and possible lies in a person's determination. Right, and I read that at first and I say, yes, absolutely, Because sometimes that's true, right? If I want to run a little faster, if I want to jump a little higher, there may be an aspect of that which if I'm determined, I can do it. But sometimes that's simply not true, right? No matter how determined I am, I can't jump off this stage and fly away like a bird. I'm never going to be able to do it. Uh, No matter how determined I am, I will never be as fast as Usain Bolt. Because sometimes the difference between the impossible and the possible is not in our determination. It's in the laws of physics. Sometimes it is in the reality of God's world. And the reason I bring that out is because uh, in the case of knowing God, 
What is impossible is to be a person who is good enough to earn God's favor apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ. You can't do it. And to say that rubs against the grain of our world because we want to say, you know what, I'm really, I'm not that bad. Yet again, we go to the book of Romans, and what does Paul say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. doesn't just mean generally we're not as good as we could be. It means every single one of us has sinned in particular ways against God. You are guilty, and I am guilty because we have violated God's principles and because we are born into a helpless state of sin. So we are that bad, apart from the intervention of God. Uh, The other ground of many heresies is this one. Jesus is not that great. The idea being Jesus is just one of many who could accomplish the same things that Jesus has accomplished. Jesus is not that great. So if you look at uh, many other world religions, what you'll see is this concept that Jesus is one prophet among many other good prophets. He is a good teacher among many other good teachers. And again, I'd say this is probably the defining uh, value system of the culture that we live in is you can say, you know what, I believe in Jesus. But to say Jesus is the only one worth believing in, the only one who can restore my relationship with God, the only way to eternal life. Again, that cuts against the grain of our world's understanding of spirituality. Some of you may have heard the old uh, religious parable called the blind men and the elephant. Uh, The idea behind the blind men and the elephant is there are several blind men who walk into a room and there's an elephant, right? And as they walk into the room, they each touch a different part of the elephant. One touches the uh, leg and he says, this is a tree. Another touches the tail and he says, this is kind of like a horse. Another walks over to the side, says this is kind of like a wall. Another walks over to the trunk and says, this feels like some kind of water hose. And the idea is they all have a a part of the truth, but none of them has the entire truth. And so the moral of the parable is, just like Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, and all other isms, we all have a portion of the truth, but nobody has it completely correct. Now, fundamentally, here's the problem with the parable is that All of them are wrong. It's not a wall. It's not a hose. It's not a horse. It's an elephant. And there is something that is absolutely true that none of them has. And as you look at the Scripture, Jesus makes a claim that there is an absolute truth that prior to His coming, nobody understood in fullness. And Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No other religious system or leader has to add anything to Jesus. Jesus is that great. And so Paul will say, you retain the standard of sound words, Timothy. Guard the treasure that is entrusted to you. Don't deviate to the right. Don't deviate to the left. Guard the message of the good news. 
that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God who died for our sins because we're sinners and rose again and abolished death and he brought life and immortality. That is a priceless treasure, one for us to not be ashamed of but to proclaim boldly. And so Paul says, guard God's message. The other major theme that emerges in this passage is as you guard God's message, imitate God's messengers. Imitate God's messengers. I want to highlight just a few places in this section where Paul brings out this theme. Verse 8, he says, join with me in suffering for the gospel. That's actually one Greek word, uh, suffer together with me. Timothy, do what I'm doing. And Paul is writing this from prison. He says, Timothy, be willing to suffer as I suffer. You go down to verse 12. Paul says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul says, I am not ashamed. I am willing to suffer. Timothy, imitate my faith. Verse 13, retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me. And then in verses 15 to 18, Paul discusses those who turned away from him in Asia, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Bummer for those guys to go down in Scripture as people who abandoned Paul. But then he says, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. And was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. The implication is don't be like Phygelus and Hermogenes. Be like Onesiphorus. Imitate God's messengers in guarding the gospel, in being unashamed of the gospel. He says imitate, first of all, their endurance their willingness to endure conflict and suffering and run as they run. Imitate their endurance. Paul will say, join with me in suffering. Join with Onesiphorus in being willing to join with me. Look at those who are running well and run behind them. Run like they run. A few years ago, I read a fantastic nonfiction book. It's called Born to Run. Uh, Some of you have probably read this by Christopher McDougall. And what McDougall did was he examined the dynamics uh, physically and socially and all of these dynamics behind ultra marathoners, uh, these men who run 50 miles and women too, who run 50 miles, 100 miles or more. And what he was looking at is how do they do this without dying? And so he looked at a variety of aspects of their training And one of the things that he highlights in one chapter is that most of them don't wear the types of tennis shoes that you and I uh, wear. At least in tribal Mexico, these men who would run for 100 miles or more, they would wear uh, very thin sandals. And, And the theory was that the shoes that you and I often wear, these thick running athletic shoes, actually are detrimental to distributing the force we need to run for long distances to distributing that appropriately. All right, so this, this sparked a trend of people wearing uh, flat shoes. The book was fantastic, by the way. Almost made me want to run. Um, the, uh, 
Uh, it's a very interesting book, but as a result of the book, uh, some of you will remember that it sparked this uh, trend of people wearing shoes like this that looks like a little glove that you place on your foot. And I would see people wearing these not only to run, but actually like at parties and stuff, right? And you would look at their feet and you would say, that's really bizarre, right? That you're wearing that uh, out in public at a social setting, but see, they didn't care, Because they figured as long as I am imitating those who run well, it doesn't matter if you're silently judging me and my weird shoes, right? They didn't care because their primary goal, I guess, was at any moment to be able to run, right? If they're at that party and someone says, it's time right now, they're ready to go right there because they're wearing the shoes, And as I thought about that, I thought, what a great illustration of what Paul is saying to Timothy. He says, look, be ready to run at any minute. Imitate those who have suffered for their faith, who have endured for the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we get further into the book, he's going to say, Timothy, you be ready in season, be ready out of season. When it's convenient, when it's inconvenient. If somebody says now is the time to preach the gospel, if somebody says now is the time to suffer for your faith, if somebody says now is the time to remember all you've learned and hand it down, be ready in season, be ready out of season. One of my seminary professors had this uh, saying, he would say, you need to be ready to preach or pray or die at a moment's notice. And there's some truth to that. Paul will say, imitate the endurance of those who have run well. As I mentioned earlier, you and I uh, do not yet, at least, live in a cultural context where we experience a whole lot of outright persecution like those who came before us like many around the world. But we are still called upon at times to endure. I ran across a survey by George Barna from just last year in which he was trying to assess how many Americans, how many people in our cultural context hold what he calls a biblical worldview. Right? That is not only people who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian and would self-identify as Christian, but how many people actually believe what are the fundamentals of the Christian faith? Things like God's word is accurate in all it teaches. We are saved by grace rather than by works. Things like there is absolute moral truth or that Satan is real. Right? These are fundamental Areas of Christian orthodoxy. These are not areas in which the Christian church has typically really had a lot of debate. These are things people have believed from the beginning. He says, how many people believe these basics of Christian orthodoxy? It's less than 10% of our country. Somewhere around 60 to 70% though will identify as Christian. Right? And so, so what we have is we have a, a scenario in which the word Christian doesn't always correlate to what people actually believe. And so if we are men and women who believe the foundational truth of the Christian faith, we will find ourselves in a distinct minority. We may even hear the message that you don't have to hold to those things to be a Christian. And that places us in a situation where we are pushed to decide, will I be ashamed and back down from the truth of the Scripture? Or will I guard the message and run with endurance like those who have run before me? Paul says, imitate 
their endurance. He's also going to say, imitate their character. Imitate their character. You only see a hint of that here in this passage. We'll see more as we go through the book. But as he says in verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. In other words, retain the standard of sound words, but do it with a particular character that reflects the faith of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ. Trust in the Father as Jesus trusted in the Father, day by day. And love your fellow believers and love those in the world as Jesus loved those in the world enough to die. Allow your trust in Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit to become operative in how you live. It's not merely what we believe, but we are called as believers in Jesus Christ to live out the character of Jesus Christ. Many of you will remember the old uh, ad of the hair club for men that was popular, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. You had this guy, Cy Sperling, and he would talk about this product and how fantastic it was. And he had this big, you know, kind of full head of dark hair. And right at the end, what would he say? And remember, I'm not just the president. I'm also a client. And he would show a photo of Cy Sperling with a bald head. And the idea was, I'm not just talking about this product, but it fixed my bald head as well. I'm a client. I believe in what I say. And you know how I, you can know that. Because right? I put the stuff on my head. Okay? Paul says, as we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, allow the love that defines the life of Jesus to define our lives. To respond with grace rather than anger and hatred to those who push back and try to make us ashamed. Allow the character of God to reflect our lives as we move into the workplace, to be reflective of His integrity and His love and His kindness, but also His truthfulness and boldness when necessary. John chapter 13 Jesus said to his disciples, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus is not saying that we somehow earn our salvation by the way we treat others. We've already established there's no way you could earn eternal life. Jesus is saying that the natural outflow of receiving the love of God through Jesus Christ ought to be that we love those around us. And we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by that, that's how the world knows that we are his disciples. When it's not only what we believe and proclaim that is distinct, but also what we do. The love and the faith and the life that we demonstrate. If I say that Jesus can be trusted with my eternal future, do I trust him with my earthly future? Do I trust him with my bank account? Do I trust him with the lives of my children or my spouse or my family? If I say that Jesus 
represents the love of God? Do I allow my life to reflect the love of Jesus Christ? Do I respond in anger when I am pressed into a corner? Or do I respond with grace and love? So Paul says we guard the message and then we imitate God's messengers. Right? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a priceless treasure worth defending. Through the gospel, God has proclaimed to us that he loves us because he gave his only son to die for our sin and to rise again. God has proclaimed to us that there is hope and a future for all who will trust in Jesus Christ. And so, you know, if we were to go back to that question from the beginning of our talk, what is the uh, value or idea that defines your life, that uh, if you would say, you know what, if I'm on the verge of death, if I'm in that moment where I know my time on earth has ended, what will define your life? Paul would say, allow it to be the good news of Jesus Christ. Remind yourself of it daily. As I said, this was by no means the first time Timothy had heard this message from Paul. He was reminded of it all the time over and over again, because it's a priceless treasure worth proclaiming, worth defending, worth suffering for if necessary. Paul would say, don't step back, don't be ashamed, know that it's a true message given by God that provides life to us and offers life to all those who don't yet know him. That may be you this morning. You may have come in and you are uncertain of where you stand with God. You are uncertain of the truth of what I'm saying even right now about Jesus. And the message for you this morning is that there is unbelievably good news to be found in Jesus Christ. That although you really are that bad, although you really have sinned against God. Jesus died for you. And then he rose again three days later to promise and offer eternal life to all who trust in him. It's the best message in the world. As we celebrate communion here in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to set our hearts and minds on what Jesus has done, on the, the joy and the value of the gospel. That's what, that's what communion is about. Yes, if the men would go ahead and start getting ready. It's an opportunity for us to thank God very simply for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, to remember that he died and that he rose so we can have life. If you know Jesus Christ, you are welcome to participate with us this morning. If you've not yet come to a place where you've trusted in Jesus, And you can let the elements pass and spend some time asking God, is this this the day that he would have you trust in him for eternal life? So let's spend a few moments as the elements are coming around, thanking God for the good news of the gospel and the priceless treasure that it is. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23 Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, 
in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray and then we'll close in worship. Father, we are unbelievably grateful this morning for the priceless, perfect gift of the gospel. I pray we would not become bored with it, but that it would captivate us evermore as the days and the weeks and years of our lives move forward. Thank you that you gave your son who died for us and rose again so we can have eternal life. Father, we pray that we would remember that daily, we would proclaim it regularly, and that our lives, our attitudes, our actions would reflect Jesus' love and faith. Father, we thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.